Welcome to the Global Hemophilia Report, a podcast led by science, curiosity, and storytelling. Produced by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and supported through advertisements by Sanofi. I'm Patrick James Lynch, your host and resident person with hemophilia. Thanks for listening. Our topic today is sports, fitness, and hemophilia. We kick off the episode right after this quick word from our featured advertiser. Sanofi seeks to break barriers for people with hemophilia through groundbreaking science so they can live beyond the limitations of their condition. Learn more about Sanofi's commitment at sanofihemophilia.com. The tension was palpable and the expectations were running high. In 2019, Tignes was the last village in the route for the Tour de France cycling race. The cyclists rode approximately 2,000 miles across France to get there. Now over 150 riders were still in the race. Hailstorm, ice, and mudslides made the ride difficult. But finally, the route was shortened, and cyclists headed to Paris for the last stage of the race. The Tour de France was not only a physical challenge, but a challenge and test of passion and perseverance. Alex Dowsett finished the Tour de France in fifth place. This was a big win for the global hemophilia community, as Alex is one of the few professional athletes in the world who also happens to have hemophilia A. He's an inspiration to all young people who want to pursue a career in sports but also live with hemophilia. For Alex, hemophilia did not become an obstacle but a condition to be managed. Nowadays, we do see people with hemophilia participating in sports, such as baseball and basketball, but that was not always the case. Even participating in fitness activities such as gym class would be considered risky once upon a time. Today, we have with us Chris Bombardier. Chris has pursued his fitness goals in sports since he was a child, and he is known for climbing the seven summits, the tallest peak on each of the seven continents. You can learn more about Chris's achievements in the documentary film Bombardier Blood and the companion podcast The Final Summit, both produced by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media. Advancements in hemophilia care, as well as advancements in understanding the benefits of engaging in sports, particularly for young people, have changed significantly the risk-benefit equation for people living with hemophilia. So what do we better understand about this topic than we did five or ten years ago? I asked that question to Chris to kick off the discussion. The first thing that comes to mind is I think I agree with that statement of kids being involved in sports does have have benefits. And I think it's really wonderful that we can start thinking about, you know, patients and young people with hemophilia in a similar way to the way we think about other young kids. So, you know, it's not so much of like a we can't do these sports. It's more just like, how do we participate in a safe way, um, knowing that there's these benefits? So I'm very excited to to see these, you know, the younger generation of guys with hemophilia and, and kids with hemophilia that are able to participate in these sports and kind of have that more traditional, normal childhood. There's obviously there's going to be challenges and, and, and difficulties that other people might not have to deal with. But it's way more possible now, which is wonderful. And I think it lets kids explore things that they haven't tried before, what they're 
maybe have dreamed of trying but haven't had the opportunity. It, it opens up those doors to new possibilities and finding more about yourself than you might have been able to do before. Chris, what do you remember about your sports activities and the way your hemophilia was managed during your childhood? Yeah, um, I remember a lot when I was a kid about playing sports and gym class and just being at school. You know, I wasn't on prophylaxis when I was young. I wanted to be in gym class running around like a crazy person. Um, and I remember getting having bleeds and then like having to sit on the sidelines and just sit and wait and watch. And I remember the loneliness that caused for me of feeling excluded and feeling different that I couldn't just participate with everybody else. And that had a lasting mark on me. I, I hated that feeling of being different. And, you know, I didn't have a community to like share that frustration with or, or community that understood what that challenge felt like. I think about even baseball, it was always in the back of my mind of what happens if you get hit with a pitch, it's like games are going to have to infuse and you might miss games. And, and then I also have this very distinct memory of having to carry a, my cooler full of my factor into the dugout during games and just having to explain that to every new team I ever played on. But I also do remember a lot of great teammates that learned about it, didn't judge me about it, didn't make fun of me just helped encourage me to participate. And I think some of those bonds through baseball are some of my strongest friendships throughout my life. But those are still guys that I communicate with a lot. So I think there's something very valuable about those bonds that you build with teammates that even though they couldn't relate specifically to what I was going through, they could, they were there as to support me in different ways, which was incredibly valuable. Chris provides us with some meaningful lived experience insights on how physical activity and sports altered his overall quality of life. Now let's gather some medical insights from physiotherapist Paul McLaughlin out of the United Kingdom and physiotherapist Olav Versloot from the Netherlands, each of whom join us for today's discussion. Longtime listeners to the Global Hemophilia Report will have heard Paul on the show before and quite recently. Olav, on the other hand, is here for the first time. He also just recently defended his PhD thesis titled Sports Participation, Injuries, and Bleeds in People with Hemophilia. We are fortunate to have his expertise contributing to this discussion as well. We are also joined by Dr. Marilyn Menko-Johnson to share with us the clinical perspective. I'll now turn things over to my colleague and Global Hemophilia Report's scientific advisor, Dr. Donna DiMichele, to kick off the discussion with our clinical experts. Good morning. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, I'm Paul McLaughlin. I am a clinical specialist, a physiotherapist based at the Royal Free in London in the UK, uh, Adult Centre. I have a background in physiotherapy and a master's in human movement science and clinical epidemiology. And I'm actually, in 10 days from now, I'll be defending my PhD thesis on sports participation and injuries and bleeds in hemophilia. And I've done my research at the Van Graveld Clinic in Utrecht which is a wonderful site to work and to do studies because we have nearly or a little over half of the, all the uh, hemophilia patients in the Netherlands are under uh, care. Yes, hello, I'm Marilyn Manko-Johnson. I'm a pediatric hematologist from the University of Colorado, which is medical campus, Hemophilia Thrombosis Center. So let's talk about the physical and psychosocial benefits of sports participation how do we understand those benefits? I think working at a predominantly adult centre, we see the advantages of sport predominantly in those that are younger. And I think because I see the other side of 
that where some of the adults and the older adults were prevented from not even doing sport, they were prevented from being active. So actually their view of sport is a very different prospect to sort of some of those late teens, early 20s that are coming through now where a sport is part and was, has been part and parcel of their life. It's sort of, I suppose, is the center how we negotiate between what is now and what was previous. And I think that is both a positive and a not a negative, but a, perhaps a distraction, maybe, on how we push for sport and activity. I would say I'm talking about team sports, and that is children getting together in a group with adult supervision, playing a game with specified rules, and often with competition against other groups of children, is an activity which is worldwide, and from what we can see from history, it goes back a long, long way. So that tells us that it served a very important role in, in child development. And I see this as, as important in physical, social, and psychological development, I think children are very physical, they're physically oriented, and so having an activity where they are engaging their bodies and learning eye-hand coordination and agility and strength and speed, both fosters their physical development, but in a way that's fun for them because it's social. Now let's return to Chris, who had the benefit of having Dr. Marilyn Mako Johnson as his pediatric hematologist growing up in Denver, Colorado. Chris recalls the benefits of having Dr. Manko Johnson and her staff as his providers growing up. I always think I was incredibly privileged and fortunate to grow up in Colorado with this treatment center staff with Dr. Manko Johnson leading it. Sue Garrity as a, as a wonderful nurse, Sharon Funk, my physical therapist. All these amazing folks that were kind of on the pioneering edge of what they allowed their patients to do with bleeding disorders. And it was amazing. When I was starting to play baseball, they were, you know, all for it. They wanted to support me. They wanted to encourage it. And I think even more so, as I got older, they saw it as an avenue to help me become an advocate for my own care and for me to, like, take some independence in my treatment. You know, um, they saw how much I cared about playing the game, but they also saw how much I hated infusing. And so they let me learn that lesson of like, if you want to play this game that you love, you got to manage this bleeding disorder that you have. That's the balance. You got to figure it out. And so they sat with me learning how to infuse. They sat with me when I made the bad call of not infusing and having a really bad bleed and kind of helped me learn um, more independence with my care and like how to manage it, which in turn, I think translated to me being able to go climb mountains and have these other wild dreams because I realized I could manage it with my bleeding disorder. It just was a matter of learning how. And I think their lessons and their encouragement to play sports was what really kind of put me on that path forward to being able to manage my bleeding disorder in the future. If I didn't play sports, I can't even imagine where my life would be. I get so much joy from moving my body and, and reliefly and physically through through that or sport it may be. Now it's more solo sports and just taking care of my body. But even when I was a kid, like that is the only thing I really felt like I gained enjoyment from. And so I don't know, I can't even imagine my life without playing sports or being physically active in some way. My parents always joke that like maybe golf would have been the better trajectory. Like, I know that's still a sport, but it's a much different sport than baseball. 
So I guess my only answer is I could see the trajectory more towards golf, but like that's still <laughs> a sport in a way. <laughs> but what are the scientific discoveries and advancements that have made this possible? After the break, we'll take a deep dive on that with Dr. Marilyn Mako Johnson, Paul, and Olav. Hemophilia A and B are both bleeding disorders. However, they have their own unique pathologies and clinical features, which makes them inherently different. Preclinical studies have shown that after infusion, individuals have three times more factor IX in the extravascular space than they do in the bloodstream. Due to the distinct behavior of factor IX, multiple pharmacokinetic or PK parameters should be considered when assessing the treatment and management of hemophilia B. So what does this mean for people with hemophilia? Visit the bigger picture in hemeb.com to see how a broader view of PK may influence hemophilia B treatment. That's the bigger picture in hemb.com. This site is intended for US HCPs only. Welcome back. We return to the discussion with Dr. Donna D. McKelly. So how are you measuring um the benefits. How are you measuring that in the clinic? I would say two things. One, I don't really think that I have had a big change in perspective over the last five to 10 years with new therapies. One was a, a number of people with hemophilia who committed suicide. And I was very struck. Uh, one was a 16 year old boy who took his life with a gun that his father had given him. I just felt like if this life is not worth living, I want to know why and what we can do to restore that. Um, and then another one where, just as Paul said, that the kids who would just do it anyway and not talk about it, I had a 13-year-old boy who was admitted to the hospital three times with a big, massive knee bleed. He went home and he came back the third time, same knee. And finally, I had the light bulb came, went on and I asked everyone else to leave the room and I said, look, I'm not gonna tell on you, I'm not gonna get you in trouble. I just need to know why your knee has bled three times. What did you do? And he said like, well, I'm not allowed to play football and that's what everyone does. So after school, I go behind, we go behind the garage and that's where I can play with the kids. And I hurt my knee. And I knew my parents would be very upset that I hurt it because I was playing football. So I didn't tell them. And as soon as I got out of the hospital, I went back and played again and it rebled, and that happened the third time. So I'm a very pragmatic person. I felt like, well, um, not wanting to live, feeling the need to take unnecessary risks, and having such a strong desire to play sports are just the given, and how can we deal with that? We measure it based on probably my own experience and also sort of the physical, sort of what somebody's joint health looks like. So whether that be sort of range of movement, strength, sort of muscle quality. But I think wider than that, the sort of idea of we see sport as a sort of very discrete moment of being physically active, which actually, if we then take a step back and we look at physical activity and we take a step back from that and we look at general activity, for some people we're literally asking, do you leave the house every day? Do you sort of move? Are you active? And if you are active, do you, is your physical activity going to the shops and going to work or actually is your physical activity going to the gym? And is your, if you're going to the gym, is you going with your, on yourself? Are you participating in, things like racket sports are sort of team sports, but actually not necessarily with multiple people, but actually sort of against somebody else and actually having a competitive edge to that. And I think 
purely my own sort of experience, I think for some of my older adults, there's sort of activity has been a solitary experience. And so the experience of being in a group and doing sort of physical education, even at school, has been tainted by not being allowed to do it or being the one that got to clean up the changing rooms but not participate in the football or the rugby that was being played at school. So there's a very negative view of, a very negative memory of not being allowed to do it, but then when you're not allowed to do something that early, I think we're in sort of two types of people, those who do it anyway and don't tell the school or their parents, or those that feel that they can't do it, which actually then there's a sort of a belief or a lack of belief in their own physical ability. And that's kind of what we begin to make this sort of softer thing that we measure around how you, we sort of test people in the sort of the physio gym. So getting them to do certain activities or even being on the, like a cross trainer or elliptical machine where perhaps they don't think they can do it because it's never been a thing that you know, they're sort of almost their physical literacy isn't there. They don't know how to be active. They don't know what it is to be slightly short of breath and actually know that's okay and sort of so that there isn't i don't know if there's a quantitative measure so we don't we certainly don't measure things like fitness and clinic that's not a um i think if we look at things like six minute walk tests we can but again that's a discrete almost physical ability rather than sort of linked to real life but i think it's much deeper than saying sport so your question was, how do I measure that now? And so it's very integrated into our comprehensive care. And this is different from Paul. This will seem much more mechanical rather than philosophical, as he said. So the physical therapist has a very central role. And everyone sees the physical therapist at least once a year. They have a full hemophilia joint health score done. And the physical therapist takes a careful record of all sports and all activities and any limitations to them and any bleeds that were associated with them. We're part of a national hemophilia surveillance system. So the research person takes an account of every what the treatment is, if prophylaxis and which type of product and what dose and what frequency and how it relates to sports. Some kids would take a prophylactic dose before each game or, or, or uh, contact practice. And that's all recorded. And then if they had any injuries related to a sport, that's put down. We don't do it elegantly in terms of looking at the, the exact hours, how they did it. And then we have a psychosocial team that includes two psychologists and two social workers, and they do a formal anxiety and depression survey each year. Uh, and then we also do a look at autonomy. And we look at some transition elements of adolescence in terms of autonomy in caring for their own hemophilia, accessing the pharmacy. So just a look at their view of their independence and autonomy. And now we are, of course, the hematologist just talks to them about their life and what they're doing and how they're feeling about it. That's, uh, that's tremendous. What about the risks and specifically bleeding risks? Can you extrapolate pediatric data to adults um, in your counseling and in your practice? I think to some degree we can. And I think the for me, you should have mentioned sort of the, the gaps in research. And I think there are so many gaps around the research, particularly around sports. And because um, for me, bleeding is activity related or sport related bleeding can be for two reasons. It can be a failure of hemostasis. So that's your inherited bleeding disorder, or it can be an injury. So actually then the, an injury that may bleed a lot or a little. And I think that's where the gap is that actually we extrapolate bleeding as, as a, a sort of 
sort of equals a, an injury. Whereas actually, we know we've had people who bled because they happened to just have a bit of extra force and actually it was more of a hemostasis issue so they were running very very low they bled it looks terrible so they have a big muscle hematoma but actually it resolves really quickly because actually there isn't a muscle injury it's just there's blood somewhere where it shouldn't be but then on the other hand we've got people who sustain an injury so a grade two plus grade three hamstring tear actually that will bleed but that will also take weeks and weeks and weeks and actually they may tear their hamstring because they've been running. So it's actually not contact. It's a it's an acceleration, deceleration thing, which comes back to what Marilyn was saying around, you know, there are training deficits that we can address, but actually the, I think some of the stuff that gets mixed with sport and bleeding is this idea of actually we need to begin to unpick how much of this was poor hemostasis and how much of this was injury and how much of this is, is a combination of both. I think that's for us when I talk to other people and talk to other physios and you know history taken is such an important part of what we do when we come around sport and around injury we have to understand at that point when they come to us am I dealing with a an acute hemothrosis of the knee because it's a bleed or am I dealing with an ACL rupture because actually that's a very different prospect and that's really important in regards to how we talk with patients talk with sort of people that we work with and actually if they're beginning to take up a new sport we will then say right you know some people aren't really <laughs> made to run or some people aren't really made to do athletics or stuff because you know that's and that's fine but actually we will encourage you to do something else but if it's something you want to do there's a training requirement and as marlon said that will be a strength of flexibility a cardiovascular endurance and then we have the added sort of extra within some of the adults that they may have one or two affected joints which actually then pulls in biomechanical insufficiency which pulls in risk of insufficient range of movement and a joint lining that may or may not be caught at a certain point in time but we have yeah i think a big issue is muscle hematomas huge problem in moderates and males it's been given little or no attention in the research arena and we're constantly that's really what we deal with now a huge amount of sort of activity and sport related hematomas that we're pulling from sports medicine because there is nothing in hemophilia to sort of look at resolution and how much bleeding does this how much bleeding does a person without hemophilia bleed into their hamstring if they spring it so there's the counseling is on different levels you notice that we never say no there's never an outright no <laughs> it's uh, we're not saying no but we need to figure out how you might fit to do this um, and that's where either rehab will come in or if they want to take up semi-pro tennis or golf as well one of my just really most successful mentorships in the days before we had emesizumab was a young boy whose dad played at university football and was very successful at that and it was a very important thing in the family so he came to me at the age of 10 and he said i know i have severe hemophilia and and i'm not going to be a college football player but i want i'm very close to my dad and i want to experience what he did just one year and so i said okay it's a great discussion and so i talk about sports from three dimensions from flexibility strength and endurance and so we talk about first like what can you do and so in this case it was spring he wanted to play in the fall so all 
all summer. You have to do an endurance sport at least a half hour, at least three times a week. You have to do stretches for flexibility and you have to do exercises for strength. So he actually rode a bicycle every day. So he kept a very careful log of flexibility, strength, and, and, and endurance all summer. And I said, okay. And then we also talked about prophylaxis and how he, we went through the half-life and how, where he would be from his prophylaxis before each practice and in, in game and how he was going to take a small amount of extra prophylaxis before each game. And he would have one scrimmage in the practice and the other two practices, he would work out with the coach that he would do skills, not contact. So he did that for the whole year, never had an injury, was very successful. And I come back the next year, he says, well, now I'm in middle school, I, I, kids are getting big, I don't think I should play football, but I wanna play basketball. So we went through the whole thing again. The cornerstone of my program is that this is a conversation. I always tell children that I'm not there to make any decision for them. I'm there to help them do what they want to do. And I'm there to lay out the risks and benefits and give them ways that they could minimize the risks, maximize the benefits, but that the final say goes with their parents. We now know about the benefits of sports and how people can pursue sports while living with hemophilia. We can also appreciate the novel approach that doctors, physical therapists, and researchers are taking to measure the benefits of sports. Now, can the risk of bleeds be reduced significantly? Dr. D. McKelly will help us find out the answer to that question right after this quick break. Preclinical studies have shown that after infusion, individuals have three times more factor IX in the extravascular space than they do in the bloodstream. Due to this distinct behavior, trough alone may not provide a full picture of factor IX activity and should be one of multiple ways we measure factor in the body. It's time to look at the bigger picture to see why a more complete assessment of pharmacokinetic or PK parameters is important. Visit thebiggerpictureinhemeb.com to learn how multiple PK parameters can play a role in hemophilia B treatment and management. That's the bigger picture in HEMB.com. This site is intended for US HCPs only. There have been papers that have said if you've got enough factor eight, the bleeding risk associated with hemophilia can be or significantly mitigated. What do you think about that, uh, Marilyn? Let's look at hemophilia as a handicap. This is your handicap. And so what you need to do if you're going to go after into a basketball, baseball, soccer team is give yourself more preparation. So I say, look at the date that the team comes out to start and back up four to six weeks. So you start your training with the coach and the trainer. If you have one, you start six weeks earlier because with hemophilia, if you take a blow, you're a bit more likely to have an injury and bleeding than the other kids on the team. So just come better prepared. And so if, on the first day of the practice, you are so aerobically that you're really watching where is everybody else in space and who's under the basketball net and positioning yourself where you're you can avoid collisions that are avoidable, you're, you're going to do better. I, I would say that we had a, a college student in about 2000, Cassie uh, Ross, who wrote a paper on our patients playing sports. It was 20 years ago, and there were 149 seasons of sports, including the number of seasons of football, soccer, 
fairly aggressive sports. I think there was a one or two courses of rodeo in there. <clears throat> and there were like remarkably few injuries and bleeds. And that was when we only had short acting, a standard recombinant factor eight. So that's why I think it's important to, to talk about those in the past. And what's changed is I think the game changers with emesisumab, we can start at a baseline of 20%. And we know in the past, there were people that went into World War II with 20% factor eight, not knowing about it. And very well, we had a guy who was a paratrooper in the war and he didn't know he had hemophilia until he was in a car accident at age 64 and his, he had a knee injury against the steering wheel and a knee bleed. But he was jumping he, from planes over England, nothing untoward had happened to him. So the other, I, I, a couple of things I want to emphasize about sports for children is when you sit a child down and say like, I think sports are the best thing you can do, and I really want you to be successful. And we're gonna talk about everything that mitigates the risks, increases the benefits. You put all this attention on wellness. So something we don't talk about is the downside of hemophilia is we're getting some really wicked injuries that we probably wouldn't have gotten before because participants wouldn't have felt the ability to engage in it. But I think that that part of the safety of sports is the attention we put to it and the preparation and the supervision around it. And if you look at the past, what happens when kids are off by themselves with each other and what happens when they're with a supervising adult coach and parent, there are far fewer injuries in the supervised situation. I'd like to add to what Marilyn just said about the very few injuries and bleeds that she's seen in all those seasons of sports. In the data that we collected, we had 16,000 exposure moments in 125 participants, and we only saw 26 bleeds. Well, we saw more, but only 26 sports-induced bleeds. We saw some more that were not sports-induced, but we only saw 26 sports-induced bleeds. That's 0.2%. It's really, really low. And actually, we think it's even an over-reporting by the guys with severe hemophilia that they've been notoriously bad in interpreting their own complaints. And as it's mostly patient-reported outcome, uh, they've interpreted some of their complaints as a bleed, which was just maybe a strain or a little, a little pain somewhere. So... Actually, we think if we had seen them all at the clinic, it would have been less, even less. So that's one very important thing to constantly emphasize that the number of bleeds is really, really low. The other thing that was, I think, really important to mention is that sports participation among especially the younger patients with hemophilia is just as high as the rest of the Netherlands. There's just no difference. They're just as active and they're, from, they're active in the same sports. They play football, they, they're active in judo, they go swimming, cycling, obviously ice skating in our country. You see a difference in the adults because the eldest football player we had was 31. We didn't see any older football players, but we think that's a legacy from the past where they were not allowed to play football or any other contact sports for that matter. So they're just as active. And actually, the our eldest group, the 40-plus guys, were even more active. No, sorry, that was a different study. The 50, 60-plus guys were even more active than the general population. And I think that's in part the just that's been laid on it from the treatment centers to stay healthy and to stay fit and active. They do completely different sports. It's walking, it's a bit of fitness and a bit of cycling. There's no high-risk sports in those categories anymore. Um, but still, they're very active. So that's another very important 
conclusion of my research. So I think those are clinically very important conclusions that we also can explain to our patients. Saying, listen, as long as you're, let's say, within 12 hours before of infusion, before you go into whatever kind of sports you're into, you're safe. I think that's clinically very interesting. And that's something that we can share with our patients and with all those concerned mothers. How do you distill these data when you're talking to a parent who has a child who's newly diagnosed with hemophilia? I think there's uh, maybe we should make a distinction first into two situations where a hemophilia was known in the family and where it was not known. Because we're at the point now where, well, nearly everything's possible, but the previous generation, let's say their grandfathers, who also might have suffered from hemophilia, had, com- had a completely different background. So parents, and especially the mothers, if we look at the line of inheritance, they have an image in their mind of their fathers who had probably very poor joints and were not allowed to do anything. And I think that calls for a different approach than somebody who's absolutely blank on hemophilia, who's primarily panicking, oh my God, my, ch- my child has found something very serious and it sounds horrible and what is this and will he grow old? And And I think in both cases, we should keep it very simple. We should, first of all, if we keep just the general education side to the side, because I think that's more of a doctor's thing. But if we look at the sports and the physical activity part of it, the most important thing is to show them why we think um, it's not that dangerous or risky. And then from that on, also use the data and show them what we found and then I think 10%, what I just gave as an example, is a beautiful example. And next to that, we should also explain them, listen, with the current treatment, people with hemophilia are just as active as anybody else, most people else. And we found that the general population and hemophilia are just as active. And This is very interesting. Are you seeing unexpected limitations in the distances that they can walk without, that you wouldn't have expected based on your evaluation of musculoskeletal health? Yeah. And the problem of the ankle pain is all encompassing for us clinically because it affects all the age groups. Like we have sort of young men with bad, a bad ankle and we have older men with two bad ankles and at various levels of MRI damage and whatever. And you know, we had exactly this conversation this morning at work around, you know, how much of this, if it's not bleeding and it's not necessarily fatigability within a muscle structure, actually, is it this this sort of bony edema? It's an intraarticular pressure with it actually, the cartilage damage is just so, you know, discreet that actually there's a point where it can't dissipate force anymore. And so the problems that are happening subchondrally, even with that sort of, it's not quite mechanical pain. It's a buildup and sort of gets to a point and then it's there's a point of no, I can't go any further, which is different to those who can walk and walk and walk and walk and walk. But the minute they sit down and then go to get up again, they can't, which that's a different, that's a, some, that's a very classic arthritic picture. And I don't know, there is, I don't know if there is an answer. And again, it's another research gap, a knowledge gap that what is driving some of that pain, discomfort, that sort of nociception that these people are living with. And I think it's a very modern problem. And there are young men with bad ankles who are going to live another 50 or 60 years with that ankle. And I think we have to do better as a research community to 
because we said the only point you can give more prophylaxis and give more painkillers and then there's kind of nothing in the middle and then if ankle fusion we don't have an in-between like there's a sort of gap of what to do and you can do your mobilization and rehab but actually it's just there's a very different um, i know the netherlands the group in the netherlands have looked at sort of things like elizarovs and stuff but that's again research orthopedics is a gap for some of these to maintain mobility and ability in some of those bad ankles i think the sporting stuff around the mountains and waters for me is really interesting It'd be really interesting to know on a population level i mean how many mild people with mild hemophilia do you have hematomas that they don't really even notice they just continue and it eventually heals but just takes longer because they think that's normal maybe i don't know there's again a big knowledge gap I'd like to add that in Holland, we now have the first semi-professional football player with hemophilia, although he has mild hemophilia. With a, I'm not completely sure, but I think he's got 14 or 15% factor level, so he's quite high in that. And obviously, we've had Alex Dorset, who was a professional cyclist with severe hemophilia, who just quit his career this year, this summer. So we're already there with professional athletes. There are not that many yet. And I think the great thing about this is that we're looking at new problems, like Paul said, like the walking distance and everything. We wouldn't be having this discussion 10 years ago because they wouldn't do that at the time. So these are new problems. And I'm a bit cautious to say, but they're almost luxury problems compared to where we're coming from. And that's absolutely a great news. And then I agree immediately with Paul and Marilyn. We've got some very maybe not pressing, but big gaps in knowledge that we should address. And that brings us to really new questions that need to be answered. For example, the introduction of emizizumab. We, in our study, we saw that 10%, which is a very nice way of cutting things in half. How does that work uh, when we look at emizizumab? Because they, the manufacturers claim it has the same effects as 10% factor level. Well, how does that work with sports participation? I have absolutely no clue, but we need to study it. That makes this a very exciting time in the inferior world. I'm going to go do this as a roundtable, each of you with a few ideas of where research on maximizing sports participation in hemophilia goes from here. I think that a very important goal is maximizing normal factor eight and nine levels. So you'll still see a lot of people writing about, well, with 3%, you could do this or 5%, you could do that. And I do appreciate for uh, countries with lower incomes who can't afford maximal treatment, that's very important to spread your resources out and see how much you can get out of them. But if you're talking about a growing child who's uh, participating in athletics, I think we should be looking at uh, how do we get them to 30 to 40%, which we know is a good level for most activity. And related to that, I think when we do surgery for, uh, when we either treat an acute bleed or do surgery for mechanical things like meniscus and uh, ACL uh, tears, uh, we should be looking at how much factor eight does it take to get an optimal repair. Because one of my to-do lists is to look at our bleeding rate. My favorite hobby horse is muscle hematomas and soft tissue bleeding. Um, I think because it bridges a severe mild moderate and they're the ones that create for us the most clinical uncertainty. We don't really, and what's the optimal time and the optimal factor rate for an ACL repair? Actually, what is the optimal sort of amount of factor rate or nine to permit a grade two or a grade three hamstring tear to heal to its full capacity without the risk of re-bleed? 
and how long would that take and how long should we still visualize hematoma for because actually that hematoma being there doesn't necessarily mean everything's negative that might well be normal for a tear that size but actually how do we do because we don't know what's abnormal because nobody really so the soft tissue stuff is very low down the interesting route from in regards to joint bleeds but i think they potentially have more problems certainly around if you a missed grade two or three tear in a hamstring that's badly managed that re-bleeds actually ends up taking a 24 year old who was fit and well to now somebody who perhaps will have a problem if in the year's time if they repeat sort of they go for a sprint or anything like that so i think there's a real need there and i think certainly in this new this realm of extended half-lives and so bemsuzumab where we're in this sort of mild for most of the time range can we hand on heart say that is enough to not necessarily to prevent them but actually where do we need to take them to and how long we need to keep them there to facilitate healing if they get some of these large soft tissue bleeds whether they be contact contusions or our sprains which are again different but yeah that's where i think a lot of the attention could be put to Oh, wow. I think, well, we've seen now that injury risk is limited and bleeding risk is limited within sports participation, but it's a snapshot. It's a window. We have no idea what the long-term effects are. And that's something that's going to be very important because that's a discussion that's almost replacing the discussion now whether sports participation is safe or not. Um, The next question is, how does it work out in the long term? And as an addition to that, it's also... We've seen some small studies suggesting that sports would be protective, especially for joints. We don't know. It's really small. We need ICTs on that. And then we can really tell something about Then we can also play that into clinical care, into clinical practice. Um, and something else that's, that I'd like to see is if it's protective, what happens to the sedentary guys? Because we're promoting sports participation and physical activity but there's like we said there's 20 to 30 percent who just doesn't want to and then okay that's fine if you don't want to but what's the long-term effect for them do they have worse joints in 40 years or the same maybe better i don't know we have no clue and i think that's really important for especially for a care of aging hemophilia patient and then lastly there's a glorious age in treatment at the moment. Emizizumab is coming up, gene therapy is coming up, um, extended half-life products are coming up. What are those effects? We've touched upon the Emmy, but how about gene therapy? We just don't know yet. So it's a glorious time to be active in, in hemophilia research. There's so many questions coming up and there's so many interesting and nice projects that should be possible to do getting more and more excited this way. So uh, last thing I want to say about the documentation is now we have a young physician who is in another lifetime, a biomedical engineer. So she is developing a gate lab where she is doing two things, both using a round force plates and studying vertical and axial and rotational forces on the joints in the lower extremity, primarily the hips, knees, and ankles, and looking at symmetry of joints with the hypothesis that if you're asymmetric, both sides are vulnerable. The weaker side is vulnerable because of its weakness, and the stronger side is vulnerable for overuse. And so then having our physiotherapists develop and design a precision 
uh, rehabilitation program for them to regain symmetry. And the other thing in terms of fitness is using, which are accelerometers tied to shoelaces on their shoes when they're playing soccer or running and playing and having the information transmitted to her over phone line, the airwaves through a smartphone so that we can actually measure the intensity and duration of their aerobic exercise. Okay, well, listen, it has been a great conversation. So thank you so, so much. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you to all who contributed to this episode and who are contributing to this topic all around the world. Now let's recap. We started with Chris Bombardier. Chris shared with us how physical activity and sports altered his overall quality of life. He enjoyed participating in the games, developed some long-lasting friendships, and also learned to better manage his bleeds as a result of engaging with sports and athletics. Then our expert panel shared their insights with us. The methods used to measure the benefits of sports remain a blend of traditional measures, such as performance, and non-traditional aspects, such as a passion for sports. We also looked at quantitative measures for the risk of bleeds. Although the risk for injury is real, the risk for injury is comparable to people without hemophilia. We also talked briefly about various management strategies, including medication. These advances will help young people with hemophilia participate in sports and join athletic teams should they decide to do so. Mountaineering, baseball, cycling is only the beginning. In the coming years, people with hemophilia may not have barriers to participate in any kind of sport or physical activity. At least, I'd like to believe that. We're certainly well on the way. Thank you to our featured advertiser, Sanofi. Their support enables this show to explore topics such as this, and we appreciate them for that support. Thank you, Sanofi. And with that, that is a wrap for this episode. Thank you all for listening and stay connected with the Global Hemophilia Report. You can subscribe to the Global Hemophilia Report wherever you get podcasts to ensure that new episodes hit your feed the moment they go live. If you know of any clinicians, researchers, scientists, med students, policymakers, or patient advocates who you believe would benefit from this content, then be sure to send them to globalhemophiliareport.com or encourage them to search the Global Hemophilia Report on their preferred podcast player. Thank you to our producer and the whole production team here at Bloodstream Media. My name is Patrick James Lynch, and you've been listening to the Global Hemophilia Report. Until next time. Sanofi is committed to bringing new perspectives and bold innovations to the global hemophilia community. Learn more about how Sanofi is committed to breaking barriers and supporting the community at sanofihemophilia.com.